below, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 120, Mysteries of the Rock-Born God, the Roman Cult of Mithras. The Roman Imperial period gave rise to a number of weird and wonderful cults. To one of them, Christianity, we've been devoting quite a bit of attention in the podcast already. But it's important to remember that the idea that Christianity would one day become what it became, a hegemonic world religion, would have seemed quite absurd to most observers in the second or even the third century. Now, at just about precisely the same time that Christianity first appears on the scene in our evidence, another new cult appears, the Mysteries of Mithras. Mithraism, as it's called nowadays, seems to have spread faster than Christianity, to have quickly or even immediately gained a foothold as a religio licita, a legal, allowable cult under Roman law, which would not always be the case for a private cult like this one, and to have become very popular, though always limited in its membership due to its having been an initiatory esoteric cult, that is, a mystery. In this episode, we're going to introduce the fascinating mysteries of Mithras. They're really interesting and worth studying in their own right as an ancient esoteric cult, but are there specific reasons why they should interest us as students of Western esotericism? Yes, there are. A few specific ones, plus a couple of big ones. The specific ones are that we have two passages in important antique esoteric Platonist authors, one a testimony of Celsus preserved by Origen in the Contra Celsum, and another in Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, a milestone of esoteric hermeneutics which we will be covering in upcoming episodes. So it makes sense to talk about Mithraism a little bit before covering Porphyry, just to give background to his incredible uh, exegesis of the mysteries. Then, of course, the Emperor Julian, a very important figure in the history of imperial esotericism in the West, who attempted to turn back the tide of Christianization and return the Roman Empire to what he saw as the old ways of traditional polytheism. Julian was a Mithraic initiate, and Mithras plays a big role in his thought. Then, again, later on when we get to the early modern period, we'll see antiquarian esotericists like William Stukeley bringing the remains of the cult of Mithras, the mysterious underground temples that we find all over Europe, known as Mithraia, into their speculative historical schemes to play an important role in reimagining the wise esoteric ancients alongside the Druids and many other early modern favorites. So it would be great to have covered what we know of the Mithraic cult as it was practiced in antiquity when we get to Stukeley and his post-Newtonian colleagues, lest we be seduced by their druidic, Solomonic, Mithraist uh, imagination. But there are bigger reasons for knowing about this cult. Ancient mystery cults are, of course, just of interest to us in a number of connections. We've seen this in the podcast already, for example, in episodes 12, 13, 34, and beyond. And here in the cult of Mithras, we have a new mystery cult, a new religious movement of later antiquity, but one developing the older model 
of the esoteric members-only initiatic cult. So this is just an interesting development for us as historians, and something which might perhaps give us a better perspective on other things, um, like the rise of Christianity, for example. Moreover, this was no ordinary mystery cult. It was a mystery cult which, at least in some cases, had astral worship and astrological beliefs at its heart. We're going to need to talk about that a little bit and explain exactly what we mean by astral cult, which we'll do in the next episode, where we discuss astral worship and astral salvation in the cult of Mithras. So, you know, as historians of, among other things, astrology, we definitely want to know about the cult of Mithras for that reason. Last but not least, the single coolest text from the Greek magical papyri, and I say single coolest based on empirical scientific evaluation, a text from the great Paris magical papyrus known as Bibliothèque Nationale Supplement Grec 574, entitled Immortalization in the manuscript, is known to all and sundry for reasons we'll get into as the Mithras Liturgy. Uh, we will discuss the Mithras liturgy in episode 122 after we get into the astral side of Mithraism. This text is our most undeniable ancient uh, ritual prescription for undergoing a cosmic ascent and thereby becoming an immortal god. Something listeners to our episodes on the Hermetica and even our Clement and Plotinus series will be intrigued by not to mention lovers of the Hechelot texts we discussed back in episode 53. So this is Cosmic Ascent and how to do it. And the Mithras liturgy, though few today want to consider it either Mithraic, in the sense that we're going to be talking about today, or a liturgy, nevertheless has as its climax an encounter with none other than Helios Mithras. So there's some Mithras in there for sure. But in the final analysis, if I'm trying to justify why we want to cover the mysteries of Mithras in this podcast, they're worthy of our attention as students of Western esotericism, if only for the light they cast on a historical movement which could, if things had gone differently, have perhaps become an astrological world religion. So what was the cult of Mithras? We know almost nothing about it from texts. This was not a scriptural religion, and there are no Mithraic texts, really. So everything we know comes from the fascinating cult iconography of the Mithraia, which are found all over Europe, from London to the Balkans, from northern Germany to Alexandria in Egypt. Our earliest datable Mithraim, or Mithraic temple, is from the first century, and the latest is from the year 325 of the 4th century, although there are plenty of late Mithraia that are probably datable to later than this, we just don't have an actual dated inscription. When I say, by the way, that we don't have any Mithraic texts, that's not true. We have lots of Mithraic inscriptions. People would often set up Mithraia or altars within Mithraia and inscribe on them, you know, this is a gift of such a body to the great god Mithras, and so on and so forth, often giving a date, which is incredibly helpful. We think the cult probably continued into the 5th century, but Christian persecution put an end to it at some point in that century, if not at, by the end of the 4th. 
We have references to the Mithraic cult in a number of Christian sources, which are nearly always deeply hostile. Justin Marcher and Tertullian both comment on the mysteries, specifically singling out their similarity with Christianity. And one definitely gets a sense that for Christians of the only one way to the truth school of thought, which Tertullian definitely is, the Mithraic cult is especially dangerous and sort of hateful precisely because it's sort of too close to Christianity for comfort in some senses. Now, the Roman god Mithras is a Roman version of an Iranian god, Mitra or Mithra, who goes way back to the Bronze Age. Mithra is one of the Amesha Spenta, who are the, the sort of highest gods in Zoroastrianism below Uhuru Mazda, who is the supreme god of the faith. So sometimes they're described, the Amesha Spenta, as uh, emanations of Uhuru Mazda, but I, I think that might be Im uh, importing a sort of Platonist terminology to this religion. At any rate, Mithra is one of the most important of these beings in ancient Iran. Shrines to him exist from the Achaemenid period, and throughout the Hellenistic period we find signs of a thriving Mithra worship. Such that, for example, Antiochus I of Comagene, so this is a Hellenistic ruler of the first century BCE, commissioned a stela showing him shaking hands with Mithra. Now, incidentally, if you're listening to this episode on one of the many podcast apps out there, I highly recommend you hit pause in a second, go to www.schwepp.net and click on this episode, because we're going to be talking a lot about iconography and amazing cultic imagery in this episode, like this glorious stela of a Hellenistic king shaking hands with a god, for starters, and you're going to want to look at this stuff as we proceed. Pause now. You back? Good. So, the Persian Mitra, Mithra, was and is a god associated, among other things, with fair dealing, honesty, uh, and contracts. Now, how did this Persian deity transfer to the Roman world and become the object of a mystery cult? No one knows. That's the beauty of it. We think the foundation of the cult probably occurred in Italy, most likely Rome herself, but that's just a guess, an educated guess, because our earliest relics of the cult are actually in the provinces. But by sifting the evidence, we can see that they were mostly founded by Italians. So we get a lot of these votive in inscriptions in Mithraia, and we can kind of analyze what kind of people were setting up Mithraia and where they were from to some degree. And we can tell that these were mostly Roman petty officials and soldiers, but actually from Italian backgrounds for the most part. But the origins of the cult in Italy, if it did start in Italy, are really unknown to us. Mithraism just appears on the world stage and seemingly appears more or less fully formed. And it spreads very quickly. We have Mithraia popping up all over the empire, east and west, north and south, within the first 50 years from our earliest sighting. Weird, huh? Um, some scholars want to argue for a single kind of religious uh, entrepreneur who founded the cult and kind of came up with it using, obviously, the figure of Mithras or Mithra from the Iranian cult, but basically forging something new. But no, who knows? 
Now, Mithras, the Roman Mithras, is depicted in cult iconography as a Persian, or actually as a kind of Anatolian, as someone dressed in the traditional garb of what's now Eastern Turkey. He wears trousers, which is something the Romans never did, and they associated that particular garment with precisely the barbaric Persian enemy. And his distinctive Phrygian cap is also a marker of Eastern provenance. So why are Romans, and Roman soldiers in particular, because the cult had special popularity among the legions, why would these Romans, who are often fighting the Parthians in drawn-out campaigns that were sapping the lifeblood of the, of the empire, why were these people, of all people, devoted to a Persian god who even dressed Persian? The short answer here has to be that Mithras wasn't a Persian god, any more than the Roman Isis was an Egyptian god, or, to take a more familiar example, any more than you can describe the Jesus of an American megachurch as a Palestinian Jewish god. Jesus is as American as apple pie and baseball. Mithras was naturalized, and to worship Mithras was as Roman as lark's tongues in aspic and chariot racing. In the year 297, the emperor Diocletian, having personally put down a revolt in Egypt, put out a bunch of decrees. One of these was a decree against Manichaeism, another new religious movement of late antiquity, which we shall be discussing in the near future, in which decree he denounced specifically the Manichaeans as a Persian sect, and the Persians are our enemies, right? So Diocletian, being a uh, military-minded emperor, knows what side his bread is buttered on. We don't do this Persian uh, foreign muck. Soon afterwards, however, the same Diocletian dedicated an altar to Mithras Fautor Imperii, Mithras the protector of our imperium, and seemingly had no problem with this. So this is a Roman god, right? We still have to wonder how this came about, and the suggested reading in the notes to this episode will lead you into the labyrinth of scholarly argument on this topic. But we'll have a very quick summary of big developments in scholarship now. Uh, it all kind of started at the end of the 19th century when Franz Cumont, the great Belgian historian of ancient religion, published a magisterial two-volume work on the Mithraic mysteries based on the assumption of the Iranian origins of the cult. Now, this went through several revisions and was translated into English, German, you name it. So this was uh, a work of scholarship that basically ruled the field for more than half a century after it came out. This was the definitive account of Mithraism, and Mithraism was an Iranian cult transplanted onto Roman soil, a kind of hybridized Zoroastrian offshoot, right? However, in 1971, the first International Congress of Mithraic Studies was held in Manchester, and in the course of this congress, Cumont's theories came under concerted attack. People started to ask whether this might be better understood as a Roman religion, really, despite the Persian origin of the god and so on. Now, this line of interpretation has continued being refined and argued about up to the present day, and I think it's safe to say that it has become a dominant uh, interpretive strain, although there has been some pushback. So there are a lot of iranologists to this day who are trying to find this or that element of Mithraic cult and say, well, this probably is Iranian. I leave it there. Please feel free to um, 
inquire further. So what do we know about Mithras, the Roman god? To answer that question, we need to look very carefully at the hundreds of tauroctonies that survive. A tauroctony is a bull slaying. It is the central cultic image of Mithraism, present in every single Mithraeum, as far as we can tell. It's an image. Sometimes it's a freestanding statue. More commonly, it's a carved relief in stone, brightly painted. And sometimes we get a, a fresco, in which case we can actually see the colors still, because the colors usually don't survive on the stonework. And it depicts the god Mithras slaying a bull. There's considerable regional variation to be found in Tauroctonies, but there's also a degree of similarity in the basic features of the Tauroctony, which make it abundantly clear that this was a very special image, clearly telling us important things about the god and his myth, and that these were fairly set in stone, haha, despite changes in details here and there. In other words, there's commonalities that run across almost all tauroctonies, even though there's lots of regional variation. Once we've described a tauroctony, we can describe the setting in which it occupied pride of place, the Mithraic temple. So if you turn to the notes to this episode and look at the splendid Syrian tauroctony at the top of the page, you'll see all the basic essentials. Mithras, clad in his trademark hat and skinny jeans, is facing us, the viewers, or let's say the congregation. His right leg is straight, his left leg is bent and resting on the bull. He's bending the bull's neck back with his left hand and simultaneously stabbing it in the neck with a dagger held in his right hand. Now this slaying of the bull was clearly an event of great, even cosmic significance. But for now, let's just keep on with our description of um, the furniture of the Tauroctony, because things start to get really weird. Ears of wheat are often depicted sprouting from the bull, either from his tail or sometimes from the wound itself. We're clearly in the realm of fecundation or fertility cult of some kind here. Slaying the bull clearly gives rise to grain, which, of course, feeds humanity, so that's got to be a good thing. Usually, in a Tauroctony, we have a dog and a snake leaping up to drink the bull's blood as it flows from the wound. We also nearly always find a scorpion attacking the bull's testicles with its claws, and a raven is often flying about on some unspecified mission, which is great because it gives scholars lots of room to speculate as to what the raven means. To the right and left of this central figure, we often but not always find two torchbearers, these are gods of a very mysterious uh, character, but we know their names. They're called Kautes and Kautopates, but no one has any really solid ideas about the origin or meaning of these names. Kautopates is usually on the left, holding his torch downwards. That's the left from our perspective as congregation. And holding a torch downwards is a funeral custom in the Roman context, but this has also been interpreted as maybe representing the sunset or something like that. And Kautes is on the right, holding his torch upwards. Sometimes, though, Kautes and Kautopates flip sides and they're on the opposite sides. Generally, though, Kautopates with his downward torch is on the left from the viewer's perspective. Now, we know that Mithras is a solar god. 
This much we can say without any doubt. He's often called Helios Mithras in the Greek context, Sun Mithras. And in the Latin context, he's very often associated not only with the sun god Sol, but with Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun. Now, the Sol Invictus cult is very important in late antique Roman politics. It grew in prominence until by the Severan dynasty. So that's from the reign of Septimius Severus, beginning in the year 193. From that dynasty onwards, the cult of Deus Sol Invictus became something approaching the official imperial cult. In fact, it, in a, some sense, prepared the way for Christianity to become an official imperial cult, because up until the late antique period, the, the idea of an official imperial cult couldn't really work the way it later did. So we see, for example, the emperor's depicted with the crown of solar rays. Think of the Statue of Liberty in New York, right? This sort of pointy ray crown um, in a lot of imperial propaganda. And a lot of imperial propaganda is produced sort of associating the emperor and the unconquered son. Now, the cult of Mithras seems to have piggybacked on this popularity of the sun god to some degree, which is going to be part of the explanation for its success, but definitely not a sufficient explanation. We often see the sun, Deus Sol in Wictos, or just Deus Sol, in his four-horse chariot over Mithras's right shoulder, so the left side to someone facing the Tauroctony. And Mithras is often turning his head over that shoulder toward the figure of Sol, like he's looking at him. Sometimes Sol is sending down a ray which touches Mithras. We sometimes see depictions of Sol and Mithras sharing a banquet together on the hide of the slaughtered bull, so... We'll talk about the Mithraic myth cycle in a minute, but certainly the slaying of the bull is the climax of the cycle. But we seem to have a kind of coda where the two sun gods have a banquet together on the slaughtered bull's hide. And this obviously echoes the cultic banquet of the congregation, which we'll be talking about in a minute. Dedicatory inscriptions regularly conflate the two gods. We find dedications to Sol Invictus Mithras, to Mithras Invictus, Mithras, Sol, Helios, Mithras, etc. Incidentally, as an aside, the holy day of Sol Invictus's birth, the Natalis Invicti, the birth of the unconquered one, was the 25th of December in the Roman Empire. And the Christians decided to put Jesus' birth on the same day to try to pick up some of that Sol Invictus shine for their religion. Now, this is a well-known anecdote, uh, but we do have actual testimony from a Syriac Christian that this is really what happened. The nascent church said, should we have a holiday celebrating Jesus' birth? And they said, yeah, let's do it on the day of Sol Invictus. That way we can kind of um, slide right into that slot. Now, this day, the 25th of December, was almost certainly important to Mithraists as well. So here is a point on which Mithraism and Christianity could be seen as being perhaps in direct competition. Um, another point is the ritual meal, which we'll get to. The Sol Invictus cult will return to the Schwepp when we discuss the process of imperial Christianization in the 4th century, and so on. Now, Mithras is also the rock-born god, and many depictions of him survive, in which Mithras is emerging from a stone, usually with dagger and hat already in place. This stone is often, but not always, wound up in the coils of a snake, which may well be a piece of iconography borrowed or adapted 
from Orphic cosmogenies. Indeed, we actually find a few references to Mithras Phanes, or Helios Mithras Phanes, Phanes being the Orphic deity who's born from the cosmic egg, which is also encircled by a snake. See our episodes on Orphism for more on this stuff. You can see a, a picture of a, a rock birth, one of many, many sculptures of the rock birth found in Mithraya in the notes to this episode. Now, aside from these figures, a bewildering cast of characters, sort of optional extras, are to be found on different Tauroctonies, or to the side of Tauroctonies, or sometimes on altars scattered throughout the Mithraya. Sometimes on the Tauroctony, in the borders, we get a kind of comic strip with carved panels um, depicting what are clearly scenes from the myth of Mithras. There's a nice one from Neuenheim near Heidelberg in the episode notes, so check that out. It's too small to really make out what's going on in the myth, but you can definitely see that there's kind of Bondesine-style panels showing episodes in the life of Mithras. We often see the rock birth as part of a Tauroctony. Then there's the hunting of the bull, which seems to have been a very significant aspect of Mithras's story and had several stages, culminating with Mithras dragging the beast into a cave or a temple and slaughtering it. We often get the post-slaughter feast between Mithras and the sun god that we mentioned before, and curious attendant figures sometimes appear. In scenes of the rock birth, we sometimes see a reclining god with his face covered, which some have thought is the dreaming Cronus Saturn, to whom we referred back in episode 69. The winds often appear in personified form. The sun and moon very often appear, driving their respective chariots. And it's not uncommon to find the Tauroctony enclosed in a half-zodiac, or even completely enclosed in a zodiacal circle, depicting all the astrological signs. More on that next time. The strange lion-headed god, sometimes associated with the figure of Ion, whom we mentioned in our third uh, storytime episode, reading through the Corpus Hermeticum. This enigmatic god often hangs around uh, Mithraya, though not in the Tauroctony. Check out the lion-headed god in the famous Vatican statue. There's a picture in the notes to this episode. Whether or not this winged lion-headed figure standing on a globe, and sometimes he's depicted standing on the flattened cross, which is usually interpreted as the meeting of the ecliptic and the celestial equator, which is a very important place in the sky, as we shall discuss next episode. Whether this god is Ion, Eternity, or another figure is disputed but he's definitely associated with the cult of Mithras in some places, at least. Now, what about the Mithraya? If you look at the notes to this episode, you can see the well-preserved interior of a Mithraeum from Pompeii, with a full-color fresco Tauroctony at the end. A long central aisle leads up to the Tauroctony, and there's a long stone bench on each side. This is your basic Mithraeum setup, Lots of added extras are possible, anterooms, various altars, and so forth, statuary, but you always get this aisle with benches and the Tauroctony at the end. Now, in Italy, the Mithraya are often called Spilaya or Antra in inscriptions. This is caves. They're often called Mithraya caves, but those in the provinces tend to be called a templum or a fanum, a temple. Why a cave? Well, We'll save any interpretation of that question 
for our interpretation of Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs, where he reads the Mithraic cave as an esoteric allegory for a microcosm of the cosmos. But be that as it may, these temples were very cave-like. They don't have windows. When built in urban environments, they often occupied warehouses and other private spaces, but a lot of effort would be put into either to make the thing subterranean, really dig it into the ground, or to make the entry into the temple into a descent, often with seven steps, and seven seems to have been the symbolic number of choice for Mithraists, but not always with seven steps. It's not always possible, but they did their best. In the provinces, we sometimes find Mithraia that are actually built in caves, or sometimes they'll take the beginning of a natural cave and sort of enlarge it to make a Mithraium. And in artificial Mithraia, we often find vaulted ceilings, round ceilings, sometimes with cladding in unhewn pieces of pumice stone and stuff like that to make it look like a proper natural cave, a bit like a 17th century grotto, right? So it's it's even got a cave-like roof. Um, when stone vaulting was too expensive, we sometimes get sort of plaster, plaster work, wattle and daub vaults, but the vaulted roof seems to have been quite important. And so these temples, even when they're just called temples, are still kind of cave temples. So we have a solar deity here, Mithras, whose worship takes place, at least symbolically, underground. Incidentally, sometimes the vaulting of the Mithraim is painted with stars, not always, but sometimes representing the night sky, which maybe leads us in the interpretive direction Porphyry's following, or leads us to a kind of thinking about heavenly things. Now, this is interesting to me. It reminds me of the Orphic lamellae, with their evocation of the stars in the deepest part of the underworld, and of Plato's myth of Ur in the Republic, where an underworld journey suddenly flips the script and becomes a vision of the cosmic spheres seen from above. We can adduce the heavens beneath the earth in Aeneid Book 6, Apuleius' account of initiation into the mysteries of Isis, where he sees the sun shining at midnight. I'm throwing all this out there as intriguing thematic links, which we've discussed in the Schwepp before, which may or may not help us understand the symbology of the Mithraic temple. Now, we're, we're trying not to interpret the data very much, but just present the data in this episode, but I couldn't resist throwing that out there. Now, what went on in a Mithraeum? Uh, first of all, the initiates of the mysteries were all men, no ladies allowed. Some scholars argue that in some parts of the empire there might have been mixed congregations, but the rule for the most part was definitely men only. Secondly, the social makeup of Mithraic congregations seems to have been largely from what you might call the Roman middle and lower classes. We find civil servants of various sorts, merchants, and so on, as well as slaves and freedmen, and soldiers, lots of soldiers. But it's only in the so-called 4th century pagan revival that we start to see people of senatorial rank and emperors signing up to be Mithraists, for the most part. So that seems to be the social situation. It changes in the 4th century when there is this uh, pagan revival, which of course we shall be talking about later in the podcast. One of the things we know happened, and really this is the only thing we know happened for sure, was a religious feast in which the brethren ate food together and drank in a ceremonial meal, reclining on the benches along the sides of the aisle. 
in Mithraea, we find lots of utensils and food remains, so we know that there was a lot of eating going on. Now, as for the initiations, our uh, questions here far outweigh what we can say for sure. We're pretty sure there were seven grades of initiates. Another Christian source, Jerome, actually gives the names of these grades. Raven, Bridegroom, Soldier, Lion, Persian, Sunrunner, Heliodromus, and Father. Now, these names match up pretty well with all the little fragments of iconography we can gather together, including the famous mosaic pavement of the Felicissimus Mithraeum in Ostia, uh, which is the port of Rome. See the notes again for a picture of some of these, which give seven iconographic representations which seemingly correspond to the grades. Now, Manfred Klaus, who is very conservative generally about astral interpretations of Mithraism, nevertheless thinks that these seven grades corresponded in some way to the seven planets. And I think that really has to be right, but more about that next time. Now, were these grades through which all Mithraic initiates were expected to be able to rise? Or is Klaus right again that these grades were reserved for the pateres, the Mithraic priests, who were the central cult functionaries and did the initiations of the less esoteric membership? It's an interesting question. So the question is, is everyone in the Mithraic congregation moving up through these seven grades? Or are the seven grades, is there a sort of a basic initiation that makes you one of the members, and then there's these seven grades for the sort of elite inner circle of some kind. I think the majority position here is that everyone is on the grade system, but um, Klaus thinks, no, we should probably confine this to a sort of priestly class within Mithraism. See his article and um, other works in the bibliography to this episode. However the structure of the initiations worked, one idea that the initiates underwent taurobolium, the slaying of a bull over their head, so that they're sort of reborn in the blood of the bull. This practice has been discussed a lot in the context of the Mithraic cult, and you can see why, because the slaying of a bull is, you know, so central to their iconography. But we actually know of this practice from a different context, uh, the cult of the Magna Mater, which is a Syrian import into Roman religion, which seems to have done some of that taurobolium blood immersion in the late antique period. Now, if, as some think, the central rite of the Mithraic cult was a taurobolium, which is not impossible a priori, we have to face facts and agree that if they were doing it, they weren't doing it in the Mithraia. And this just follows from practical considerations. Imagine regularly pouring gallons of blood, because there's a lot of blood in a bowl, gallons of blood onto the floor in an underground temple with no drainage and no ventilation. How the hell would you do cleanup? There's just no way, especially in a context we know people were regularly sitting down and eating. Go smell the inside of a butcher shop in a hot third world country and then decide if you would eat there under any circumstances. There's no way. So there's no way people were doing taurobolium in the Mithraya. Nevertheless, the idea that the initiates to different grades in Mithraism had to undergo some, some kind of ordeals, and here the exact nature of these gets very speculative very quickly, this is attested in a number of sources which you can see in the notes to this episode. 
So this wasn't just a case of repeating some passwords or whatever, although we do have one papyrus fragment which does seem to indicate that there might have been um, a kind of question-and-answer memorized password part to the rituals. But there was probably some blindfolding. Swords may have been brandished. There are references to extreme hot and extreme cold. The initiations, in short, seem to have been pretty hardcore, uh, which you might expect from a cult frequented by Roman soldiers whose idea of a soothing hot shower was to whip themselves all over with stinging nettles. At any rate, we really don't know what went on. We know there were initiations. We can probably say with confidence that they involved an ordeal of some kind. In this, we're very much in the territory of older initiatory mystery cults, right? Where terror and trembling seems to have been intentionally induced so that the uh, release from terror and trembling after the initiation would be all the more powerful. The question of what members got from their initiation, aside from membership in a tight circle of comrades and all the social networking opportunities that that can bring, or unit solidarity in the case of a a legionary Mithraim, we're going to have to put that aside till the next episode when we discuss astral immortality and all that good stuff. But we can mention here an interesting thing about these mysteries. They stayed small. So a typical Mithraim would hold between 20 and 30 people, maybe 40 at the outside for a ritual meal. We don't have big Mithraia. The cave-like nature of the temple sort of limited the degree to which you can expand. So there were no Mithraic megachurches. When a congregation got too big, they just founded another Mithraim, which is no doubt why we find so many of them, right? Now, the initiates were syndexioi in Greek, those united by the handshake, And there generally seems to have been an intimate family affair vibe to these mysteries. We're all brothers once we've been initiated. So you can see maybe the social purpose in having small Mithraia, which kind of, when it gets too crowded, you just have a sort of swarm like like a hive of bees and found another one rather than trying to expand. Now, this episode has hopefully presented the basics of the data about Mithraism. It's a very fascinating religion, and you can find a lot more to go on by looking at the bibliography of this episode. You'll notice that we've given almost no interpretation of any of the data we're presenting. What does the bull slaying mean? What about all the other mythic elements, the rock birth, the water miracle? And we didn't even mention the water miracle. There's a water miracle, gentle listeners, where Mithras seems to be shooting a rock with his bow and causing life-giving water to gush forth. The bull hunt with all its different phases and eventual slaughter, the subsequent feast between Mithras and Sol, what do all of these mean? What are the raven, dog, snake, and scorpion doing in the Tauroctony? Back in episode 12, we discussed ancient mystery cults of the classical period, and a major element in these seems to have been a transformation whereby the initiand obtained a new status in society, but also in the afterlife something we seem to see reflected, Keteris Parabus, in the Orphic Lemelai and other sources as well from the classical period. Were the Mithraists being immortalized in some way, or otherwise spiritually saved? Good question. We'll address some, but by no means all of these questions in coming episodes. At the end of the day, Mithraic cult is almost only reconstructable from iconography. This iconography shows remarkable similarities across a huge geographic range, but also lots of regional variations. And as we shall see next time, to take one example, some Tauroctonies seem to indicate 
a thoroughly astrologized world picture, leading us to think in terms of salvation through cosmic ascent, mirrored most likely in the seven initiatory grades which correspond to planets. But the problem then arises of all the Mithraya with nothing particularly astrological about them, except obviously there's solar references in all Mithraya, but we must recall that solar worship and lunar worship in the Greek and Roman contexts goes way, way back and precedes even the knowledge that the planets move differently from the fixed stars, right? So solar and lunar worship, although they are kind of astral worship in a way, are very, very old, while astral worship is a specific, more limited religious option, uh, which we see arising indeed in the Hellenistic period, doubtless through influence from the Near East, and which certainly was a part of some Mithraic congregations, but perhaps not all. Now, we also have a few pieces of incredible literary evidence, most notably Porphyry's reading of the Mithraic Mysteries as a Platonist philosophic astral cult. We'll get to that when we discuss the great Porphyry. For now, we can say that scholarly opinions range from the idea that Porphyry's reading is just totally fanciful and only expresses his preoccupations as a Platonist interpreter of culture to reading his account as our single best source of evidence for the meaning of the symbolism of the, the Mithraic myth within the cult. And, you know, there's a whole spectrum of positions with a lot of nuance between those two extreme poles. So, once again, we're thrown back on the extraordinary, unique underground temples with their extraordinary and unique iconography. The initiates of the Mithras cult managed, while becoming widespread, incredibly successful, and in some cases very much kind of in a symbiosis with the imperial cult of the Deus Sol Invictus, nevertheless to stay esoteric. <laughs> 